Welcome to Building Bridges for Translational Research, a special edition podcast series produced by the Scientist Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Cytiva, a global provider of technologies and services that advance and accelerate therapeutic development, manufacturing, and delivery. To take preclinical concepts to the market, translational researchers must build strong relationships and forge fruitful partnerships that support their work. In this podcast, we talk with groundbreaking translational researchers and industry experts about their experiences developing technologies and therapies for improving human health and our world at large. In this episode, Nikki Spahich from the Scientist Creative Services team spoke with serial entrepreneur George Church, a professor of genetics and leader of synthetic biology at Harvard's Wyss Institute, about his gene editing research and his strategy for spinning translational projects into startup companies. Dr. Church, thank you for joining me. First, tell me about what inspired you to become a translational scientist. It was just kind of built into me, I think. I was very curious, as kids are, about the natural world. The World's Fair in 1964 in New York exposed me to all kinds of advanced technology, and that plus NASA kind of inspired me. For all those decades I thought I was a scientist, I was really interested in engineering, which is by almost by definition translational. I got the impression pretty early on that if you just publish a paper, it's not going to have any impact outside of the ivory tower. So you have to accompany it into the marketplace one way or another, you know, either patents or startups or something like that. You earned your PhD at Harvard University working with Walter Gilbert, an early pioneer of human genome sequencing. What initially drew you to that kind of work, and how did that lead to your research creating genetic engineering tools? In order to sequence, you had to clone things in recombinant DNA. And so recombinant DNA, I think, was the clear predecessor to synthetic biology. So reading and writing molecular biology, I was attracted to Wally's lab because I could see that revolution coming, partially also because he had worked on uh, lacroprostor and I was very interested in DNA binding proteins. So the two aligned, and I applied there for graduate school. Now you lead synthetic biology at the Wyss Institute. Tell me about the Institute's mission and how your synthetic biology research fits in. The Institute is focused on biologically inspired engineering. It could be inorganic engineering inspired by the organic biochemical world or applying the principles of inorganic engineering to biological engineering. So there's two different ways that the inspiration can go. Synthetic biology is a pretty big part of all of that. Ours is focused mostly on molecular biology, technologies, anything that you can get from reading and writing DNA, which extends to organ systems, ecosystems, and very complicated things. Even making inorganic materials that could result in all the devices we don't normally think of as synthetic biology, like computers and gears and things like that. You have a large lab group working on myriad projects. How do you organize all of these people working on diverse ventures? I would say we're sort of disorganized and anti-disciplinary intentionally. There's a real hierarchy. Tend to have two or three people per project. Sometimes they'll coalesce into eight or ten about the time that they're getting ready to butt off as a startup company, which normally would be quite disruptive, but try to do it gracefully. 
We have great administrative staff, we have people to handle the finances, appointments, intellectual property, safety and ethics. So that helps free up my time for science, which is what I do about 99% of the time. To launch a successful startup company, one needs external support and funding. Were you ever surprised when one of your unique endeavors received attention or backing? The thing that completely surprised me was what I call the elephant project to help endangered species by bringing in diverse DNA from all over the world and, and back in time up to a million years and using that to give the existing species new places they can occupy in new environments that are less risky for extinction, make them you know, resistant to major pathogens like for elephants, EEHV, and have them contribute to, to restoring an ecosystem as a keystone species. This checks all the boxes for elephants being rewilded into colder climates like the Arctic. That's something that kind of lingered. I kept answering journalists' questions without actually doing much work on it because we didn't have any money and I didn't have the confidence that it would be fundable by government, by industry, or by philanthropy. It just seemed like it was unfundable. And that became self-fulfilling prophecy because I didn't ask if it was unfunded until finally somebody kind of broke through my self-effacing defenses and said, hey, I think it's fundable. And that was Ben Lamb, the help form Colossal, and now getting close to a billion-dollar valuation for this thing that I was completely unfunded. You mentioned multiplex gene editing having a lot of potential to affect human health. How does that technology work, and how is it changing what's possible with gene editing? Before CRISPR, we and others were working on editing. Most people editing do one or two genes at a time, but we were doing large number of genes using what's called SSAPs, chaperones of single-strand DNA. The applications of this are making cells accept new amino acids not found in nature and making cells resistant to all viruses. And we finally, this year, have a preprint where we made cell resistant to all viruses. Another one is the transplantable organs needed 40-some changes to make them compatible with human. And the third one is the extinction of genes, as I mentioned, for the elephant project. Tell me more about editing cells for viral resistance. How do you make a cell virus-proof, and what are the practical applications of this strategy? As early as 2013, we made something that was resistant to a surprising number of viruses with just one trick, which was changing one of the 64 triplet codons. We've now changed three of them, in particular, changed from coding for serine to coding for leucine, which is a very different amino acid. And we've done it at a high enough level, it's hard for the virus to overcome that. It's changing the genetic code so that the host is using the synonyms, but the virus doesn't know about that trick, and it's still using the old set. It's just broken in so many ways it can't escape. We proved that we can take random viruses, thousands of them that we collect from raw sewage, farm waste, and so forth, and those phages attacked all previous attempts at multivirus resistance, but now no longer break through. Practically in microbes, plants, and animals that are of agricultural or industrial use, there are many cases where viruses can be very disruptive in Human bodies, any transplant, you don't want the transplant to succumb to the same disease that the organ that is replacing was succumbing to. So HIV attacking the T cells or 
various hepatitis viruses attacking the liver and so forth. I'd like to get rid of all those risks all at once. How many edits can you make at once with the multiplex technology? We've done 24,000 edits in human stem cells because we're looking at repeats. This is a dark matter that people tend to avoid. They couldn't even sequence it until this year. Many of them are involved in senescence and other diseases. That's a functional reason to do it. There's also a technological reason, which is the repeats are a place where we can record information. So you can think of it as a blank slate where we can write material without necessarily messing up the cellular function. That allows us to put on the order of petabytes of information into a tiny animal like a mouse distributed through all its repeats in all of its cells. We've started harnessing larger and larger families of repeats in human stem cells. This could provide a recording device like a flight recorder, but inside of the human body. I'd like to talk about transitioning from academia to industry. You have founded nearly 50 companies. What drove you to start your first company and what continues to inspire you to this day? The first few were basically people telling me that it was time. It was not proactive. First one might have been Genome Therapeutics Corp, which was basically clone my lab's multiplex sequencing capabilities, including software and and they made it almost an exact copy to start scaling it up. And that produced the first commercial genome sequence, which was sold to, to two companies, AstraZeneca and Sharing Plow. Then a couple of bold postdocs, notably Francois Vignon and Luhan Yang, started spinning out straight out of the lab without senior advisors other than me. And that seemed to work pretty well. And then all the other postdocs right behind them said, well, if they can do that, we can do that. That's worked out as a model. We can finish each other's sentences because we had the shared postdoc experience. There's better communication, and we all have shared intellectual property. It's just been terrific working with them. They like each other, and they help each other out. What are some notable challenges that you or your postdocs face when starting a company? Certainly getting the right business leadership. Sometimes the scientists do that themselves. It's not always a great fit. Sometimes they don't want to be distracted from the science. Sometimes they're not particularly good at the business. Another thing is getting the money. That's become a bit less of an issue because the track record is pretty good. And so it increases the willingness of investors to at least take a look. Getting them to take a look is probably the hardest part. Although getting seed, Series A, Series B, every stage there's some kind of challenge say that the value is increasing you know hiring and firing people is not that much fun or at least for me it's all part of standard management skills and then finding partners you want to find sources of income that's separate from investment as soon as possible because the longer that takes the more you get diluted and the less control you have and all sorts of things can go south at that point do you have any advice about finding funding partners for other academic researchers who may want to make the transition to industry, but who are coming from labs without startup experience? Don't try to do it too soon. It's much more likely you're going to fail because you couldn't demonstrate a maturity than you're going to get scooped. A lot of people with some justification feel the opposite, but I say wait until you're really ready. And if you get scooped, it probably means that they were more ready than you were. It doesn't help to go out there early. Once you have a product, 
that's kind of selling itself, then asking for money to scale it up. That's a much easier sell than to say, I want money to do the research, dream up the market plan and the business plan. Just trust us until we come up with those three things. I think that's a much harder argument to make. What are some skills or characteristics that translational researchers looking to make the transition to industry should have? What should they shoot for or avoid? And what do they need to keep up with? An awful lot of biomedical research, it's very esoteric, pure science, which is great. It's the foundation of a lot of things. But their mindset is not necessarily on engineering. If you come from an engineering group, sometimes it's fairly incremental what you're doing, and it's hard to get funding for things that are incremental. Companies can do incremental things because they're already established and they're building on their own intellectual properties. If you're coming in from academia, you have to avoid those two extremes, the the highly pure science extreme and the barely incremental extreme. And if you're lucky, you've got something that's truly new and useful. Emerging technologies are terrific in that they level the playing field every couple of years, especially the kind we have for reading and writing DNA and derivatives thereof. The younger people may have a slight advantage there because they're either more flexible or they haven't seen the other way of thinking about things, so they go straight into what's currently feasible. And they sometimes seem to have a sixth sense about what is coming up next is certainly a skill. It's taking things that people say is impossible or not useful and saying, well, I think it is. It's, it's like buy low, sell high. That's not an algorithm. That's intuition that sometimes takes a while to develop. Academia and industry both have pros and cons. What is something that a translational researcher can achieve with a startup that they can't staying in academia? Companies typically have trouble doing things that are very risky where the connection between the pure science and the application is not yet obvious. What you can do by doing a startup is scaling up. Clinical trials, for example, often run in half a billion dollars. That's just hard to get a grant to do that within an academic. Scaling up can be quite distracting. You're doing things that are hard to publish, either for proprietary reasons or because they're incremental and they're not the sort of thing that excites the top journals. And the other thing is deals are hard to do business to academic. It's just hard for a business to believe that you're going to honor your contract. You're so used to doing grants where you might have milestones, but you're not held to them. The grant runs out and you either renew it or you don't. But in business, you can actually have a contract where you're legally bound to deliver. So all those are things that you can do more easily for the startup. We've covered the importance of partnerships and industry for funding. What are some other partnerships that are important to look out for when it comes to bridging academic research to industry, to interact with patients, or to start a new lab? When you're starting, you have a choice between raising more money to become a master of all the technologies that you need, or you can outsource them to a CRO, contract research organization, or to a fab lab if you're doing fabrication, say, integrated circuits. There's a whole bunch of fee-for-service partnerships. There are others where they don't really want to do it as a service. They want an equal partnership where they might get equity in what you're doing or vice versa. Specialized animal research, access to hospital clinics, which, which even big pharma often needs to ask patent services from lawyers. You don't necessarily have to have an in-house legal team. Almost everything you can imagine, there's there's somebody out there. In fact, a fair number of startups start out as virtual, meaning that they don't have any real address, any actual 
people at Benzos, there's just outsourcing everything. They're just moving things around. And that works for a while anyway. How do you recognize when you're working on something that has the potential to transform healthcare? Is there a light bulb that goes off that makes you think this is the thing that might work? Academic scientists are pretty bad at this in both directions, uh, underestimating what they have and overestimating. You know, everyone's the hero of their own story. You can get some market feedback. When we invented a way of synthesizing genes, it was like 10,000 times cheaper based on synthesis on chips. We suddenly had a lot of people asking us to synthesize a ridiculous number of genes. So we weren't going to be getting any first and last author papers out of this, which is not our only motivation, but it told us it was mature. The other extreme was the elephant experience, where I underestimated how valuable it might be, the spinoffs that might occur. You just have to talk to a lot of people, and sometimes people think that they're going to get scooped. I keep telling my people, you need to worry more about your stuff never getting out than getting scooped. Now, do you have any final words of advice for translational researchers thinking about starting their own companies? It's easy to say follow your dreams, and I believe in that, but you need to be cautious because all the people that are highly successful did follow their dreams, but there's an ascertainment bias. You're seeing only the ones that succeeded, and there are a lot that failed, and they get a lot less press. Even in private conversations, people don't talk much as would be healthy for a realistic assessment. Be cautious while you follow your dreams. Thank you for listening to Building Bridges for Translational Research. And thanks again to George Church, Professor and Leader of Synthetic Biology at the Wyss Institute. In the next episode, we'll talk to Guangping Gao, Professor and Director of the Horay Gene Therapy Center at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, about taking his pioneering gene therapy research to industry. Keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to The Scientist Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts.